All right, this is chapter 26 of Mortal Engines. It's called Bat Munk Gampa. I'm sure you guys have heard me struggling with that pronunciation. Remember, this is the um, territory where the Anti-Traction League is, and so London is headed there um, to use the Medusa on um, on them uh, uh, so that they can obviously gain some sort of control of something that maybe they have, whether it be land or maybe something else. We'll find out. The world was changing. That was nothing new, of course. The first thing an apprentice historian learned was that the world was always changing, but now it was changing so fast that you could actually see it happening. Looking down from the flight deck of the Jenny Hanover, Tom saw the wide plains of the eastern hunting ground speckled with speeding towns, spurred into flight by whatever it was that had bruised the northern sky, heading away from it as fast as their tracks or wheels could carry them, too preoccupied to try to catch one another. Medusa, he heard Miss Fang whisper to herself, staring toward the far-off flame-flecked smoke. What is a Medusa? asked Hester. You know something, don't you, about what my mom and dad were killed for? I'm afraid not, the aviatrix replied. I wish I did, but I heard the name once. Six years ago, another league agent managed to get into London, posing as a crewman on a licensed airship. He had heard something that must have intrigued him, but we never learned what it was. The league had only one message from him, just two words, beware Medusa. The engineers caught him and killed him. How do you know? asked Tom. Because they sent us back his head, said Miss Fang. Cash on delivery. That evening, she set the Jenny Hanover down on one of the fleeing towns, a respectable four-decker called Parapetopolis that was steering south to lair in the mountains beyond the Sea of Kazakh. At the air harbor, they had heard more news of what had happened to Pazerstadt Beirut. I saw it, said an aviator. I was a hundred miles away, but I still saw it. A tongue of fire reaching out from London's top tier and bringing death to everything it touched. London's dug up something from the 60-minute war, a freelance archaeologist told them. The old American empire was quite insane toward the end. I've heard stories about terrible weapons, quantum energy beams that drew their power from places outside the real universe. Who will dare defy them now when Magnus Chrome has the power to burn any city that disobeys him? Asked a panic-stricken Parapetopolin merchant. Come here and let us eat you. London will tell us, and we will have to go. It's the end of civilization as we know it. Again! But one good thing that had come out of it, the people of Peritopolis were suddenly quite glad to accept Tom's London money. On an impulse, he bought a red silk shawl to replace the scarf that Hester had lost on that long-ago night when he chased her through the gut. For me, she said incredulously when he gave it to her. She couldn't remember anyone ever giving her a gift before. She had not spoken to him since they left the Black Island, ashamed of her outburst the night before. But now she said, Thank you. And I suppose I should thank you for saving my life, too. Though I don't know why you keep bothering. I knew you didn't really want to end up as a stalker, Tom told her. Oh, I did, she said. It would make things so much easier. But you did the right thing.
She looked away from him, embarrassed, staring down at the shawl in her hands. I try to be nice, she said. Nobody's ever made me feel like me before, the way you do. So I try to be kind and smiley like you want me to be. Then I catch sight of my reflection, or I think of him, and it all goes wrong, and I can only think horrible things and scream at you and try and hurt you. I'm sorry. It's all right, said Tom awkwardly. I know, it's okay. He picked up the shawl and tied it carefully around her neck. But as he had expected, she pulled it up at once to hide her mouth and nose. He felt strangely sad. He had grown used to that face, and he would miss her lopsided smiles. They flew on before dawn, crossing a range of steep hills like crumpled brown paper. All day the land rose up and up, and soon Tom realized that they were leaving the hunting ground altogether. By evening, the Jenny Havener... Hanover was flying over landscapes too rugged for most towns to travel. He saw dense dense forests of pine and rhododendron, with now and then a little static village squatting in its cove of farmland, and once a white settlement perched on a mountaintop with roads reaching out from it like the spokes of a wheel, real roads with carts moving up and down and a bright flutter of prayer flags at the intersections. He watched until they were out of sight. He had heard about roads in his history lessons, but he had never thought he'd see one. Next day, Anna Fang handed out balls of reddish paste to her passengers. Powdered betel nut, she explained. Mix it with some dried leaves from Nueve Mayo. They help at these high altitudes, but don't make a habit of chewing them or your teeth will turn as red as mine. The gritty paste made Tom's mouth tingle, but it cured the faint sense of nausea and lightheadedness that had been growing in him since the airship flew higher and higher, and it also helped to numb the pain of his broken ribs. By now, the Jenny's tiny shadow was flickering over high snow-clad summits, and ahead lay summits still higher, white spires that hung like a mirage above the clouds. Beyond them stretched an even higher range, and then another, higher yet. Tom strained his eyes, peering toward the south in the hope that he might catch a glimpse of old Chamalungma, Everest of the ancients. But storms were brewing in the high Himalayas, and it was wrapped in cloud. On and on they flew through a black and white world of snow and glaciers and the sheer dark rock of young mountains, where Tom or Hester sometimes had to mind the controls while Anna Fang took catnaps in the seat beside them afraid to risk leaving her flight deck. And still they climbed, until at last they were skimming over the lower buttresses of the great Zon Shan, tallest of the earth's new mountains, whose snow-capped crown jutted into the endless cold sky above. After that, the peaks were lower, white and lovely, with sometimes a green veil between, where huge herds of animals scattered and wheeled at the sound of the airship's engines. These were the mountains of heaven, and they swept away toward the north and east and sank down in the far distant to steppe and taiga and the glitter of impassable swamps. This is Shango of many horses, Anna Fang told Tom and Hester. I had hoped to retire here when my work for the League was done. Now I suppose it may all be eaten by London, our fortresses blasted by Medusa, and our settlements devoured the green hills split open and made to give up their minerals, the horses extinct, just like the rest of the world.
Tom didn't think it was such a bad idea because it was only natural that the traction cities should eventually spread right across the globe. But he couldn't help liking Miss Fang, even if she was a spy and an anti-tractionist. And, to comfort her, he said, However powerful Medusa is, it will take years for London to gnaw its way through these great big mountains. It won't have to, she replied. Look. He looked where she pointed and saw a break in the mountain chain ahead, a broad pass that a city could have crawled along, except that stretching across it so vast that it seemed at first glance just another spur of the, mo- spur of the mountains was the shield wall. It was like a wall of night, black, black, built from huge blocks of volcanic stone, armored with the rusting deck plates of cities that had dared to challenge it and been destroyed by the hundreds of rocket batteries on its western face. On its snow-clad summit, 4,000 feet above the valley floor, the banner of the broken wheel snapped and raced in the wind, and the sunlight gleamed on armored gun emplacements and the steel helmets of the League's soldiers. If only it were as strong as it looks, sighed the aviatrix, bringing the Jenny Hanover down toward it in a long sweeping curve. A small flying machine, little more than a motorized kite, came soaring to meet them, and she held a brief radio conversation with its pilot. It circled the Jenny once and then whirred ahead, guiding the newcomer over the top of the shield wall. Tom looked down at the broad battlement and the faces of soldiers gazing upward. Yellow, brown, black, white, faces from every part of the world where barbarian statics still held out against municipal Darwinism. Then they were gone. The Jenny was sinking down the sheltered eastern side of the wall, and he saw that it was a city, a vertical city with hundreds of terraces and balconies and windows all carved into the black rock. Tier upon tier of shops and barracks and houses with balloons and brightly colored kites drifting up and down between them like petals. Batman Gompa, announced Miss Fang, the city of eternal strength, although the people who call it that have never heard of Medusa, of course. It was beautiful. Tom, who had always been taught that static settlements were dingy, squalid, backward places, went to the window and stared, and Hester came and pressed her face to the glass beside him, safe behind her veil and almost girlish. Oh, it's just like the cliffs on Oak Island where the seabirds nest, she cried. Look, look! Down at the base of the wall, a lake shone azure blue, flecked with the sails of pleasure boats. Tom, we'll go swimming! I'll teach you how. Jenny Hanover landed among some other merchant ships at a mooring terrace halfway down the wall, and Miss Fang led Tom and Hester to a waiting balloon that took them up again past parks and tea shops to the governor's palace, the ancient monastery from which Batmunk Gompa took its name, whitewashed and many-windowed carved out of the steep side of the mountain at the wall's end. Other balloons were converging on the landing deck below the palace gardens, their envelopes bright in the mountain sunlight, and in one of the dangling baskets Tom saw Captain Cora waving. They met on the landing deck, the young airmen touching down just ahead of them and running across to embrace Miss Fang and help her friends out of their skittish gondola. He had flown here from Airhaven the morning after Shrike's attack, 
and he seemed amazed and happy to see Tom and Hester alive. Turning to the aviatrix, he said, The governor and his officers are eager for you to report. Feng Hua, terrible rumors have reached us about London. It was good to meet a friendly face in this strange new city, and Tom fell into step beside Cora as he led the newcomers up the long stair to the palace entrance. He remembered seeing a trim Akib 2100 berthed at one of the lower platforms and asked, Was that your machine we saw at the mooring place, the one with the oxide outriggers? Cora laughed delicately, or delightedly. That old air scowl? No, thank the gods. My Mokil Mimbi is a warship. Tom, every ally of the League supplies a ship to the Northern Air Fleet, and they are stabled together up there. He stopped and pointed, and Tom saw a gleam of bronze door far up near the summit of the wall. The high Iries will take you up there one day, Tom, promised Miss Fang, leading them past the warrior monks who guarded the door and on into a maze of cool stone corridors. The League's great air destroyers are one of the wonders of the skies, but first, Governor Khan must hear Hester's story. Governor Ermine Khan was a gentle old man with the long, mournful face of a kindly sheep. He welcomed them all into his private quarters and gave them tea and honey cakes in a room whose round windows looked down toward the lake of Batmung Noor, gleaming along patchwork farmlands far below. For a thousand years, his family had helped to man the shield wall, and he seemed dazed by the news that all his guns and rockets were suddenly useless. No city can pass Batmungampa, he kept saying as the room filled with officers e- eager to hear the aviatrix advice. My dear Feng Ha, if London dares to approach us, we'll destroy it as soon as it comes in range. Boom! But that is what I'm trying to tell you, cried Miss Fang impatiently. London doesn't need to come within range of your guns. Chrome will park his city a hundred miles away and burn your precious wall to ashes. You have heard Hester's story. I believe that the machine Valentine stole from her mother was a fragment of an ancient weapon. And what happened to Panzerstadt Bay Ruth proves that the Guild of Engineers have managed to restore it to working order. Yes, yes, said an artillery officer. So you say... But can we really believe that Chrome has found a way to reactivate something that has been buried since the 60-minute war? Perhaps Panzerstadt Bay Ruth was just destroyed by a freak accident. Yes! Governor Khan clutched gratefully at this idea. A meteorite or a gas leak! He stroked his long beard, reminding Tom of one of the ditherly old historians back at the London Museum. Perhaps Chrome City will not even come here. Perhaps he has another prey in mind. But his other officers were more ready to believe the Windflowers' report. He's coming here, all right, said one, an aviatrix from Curala, not much older than Tom. I took a scout ship west the day before yesterday. Fang Hua, she explained with an adoring look at Miss Fang. The barbarian city was less than 500 miles away and approaching fast. By tomorrow night, Medusa could be within range. And there have been sightings of black airships in the mountains put in Captain Cora. The ships sent to intercept it never returned. My guess is that it was Valentine's 13th floor elevator sent to spy out on our city so that London can devour them. Valentine, 
Tom felt a strange mix of pride and fear at the thought of the head historian on the loose here in the very heart of Shango. Beside him, Hester tensed at the mention of the explorer's name. He looked at her, but she was staring past him, out through the open window toward the mountains, as if she expected to see the 13th floor elevator go flying past. No city can pass the shield wall, said Governor Khan, loyal to his ancestors, but he did not sound convinced anymore. You must launch the air fleet, Governor, Miss Fang insisted, leaning forward in her seat. Bomb London before they can bring Medusa into range. It's the only way to be sure. No, shouted Tom, springing up so that his chair fell backward with a clatter. He couldn't believe what she had said. You said we were coming here to warn people. You can't attack London. Attack London. People will get hurt. Innocent people. He was thinking of Catherine, imagining league torpedoes crashing into Cleo House in the museum. You promised, he said weakly. Feng Hua does not make promises to savages, snapped the Kuralan girl. But Miss Fang hushed her. We will just hit the gut and the tracks, Tom, she said. Then the top tier where Medusa is housed. We do not seek to harm the innocent. But what else are we to do if a barbarian city chooses to threaten us? London's not a barbarian city, shouted Tom. It's you who are the barbarians. Why shouldn't London eat that Mungampa if it needs to? If you don't like the idea, you should have put your cities on wheels long ago, like civilized people. A few of the league officers were shouting angrily at him to be quiet, and the Carolinean girl had drawn her sword. But Miss Fang calmed them with a few words and turned her patient smile to Tom. Perhaps you should leave us, Thomas, she said firmly. I will come and find you later. Tom's eyes stung with stupid tears. He was not sorry for these people. Of course he was. Or he was sorry for these people. Of course he was. He could see that they weren't savages, and he didn't really believe anymore that they deserved to be eaten, but he couldn't just sit by and listen to them planning to attack his home. He turned to Hester in the hope that she would take his side, but she was lost in her own thoughts, her fingers tracing and retracing the scars under her red veil. She felt guilty and stupid. Guilty because she had been happy in the air with Tom, and it was wrong to be happy while Valentine was wandering around, unpunished. Stupid, because when he gave her the shawl, she had started to hope that Tom really liked her, and thinking of Valentine made her remember that nobody could like her, not in the way, not ever. When she saw him looking at her, she just said, They can kill everybody in London for all I care, so long as they save Valentine for me. Tom turned his back on her and stalked out of the high chamber, and as the door rolled shut behind him, he heard the Carolan girl hiss, Barbarian! Alone, he mooched down on the terrace where the taxi balloons waited and sat on a stone bench there, feeling angry and betrayed, and thinking of things that he should have said to Miss Fang, if only he had thought of them at that time. Below him, the rooftops of the terraces of Batmunk Gompa stretched away into the shadows below the white shoulders of the mountains, and he found himself trying to imagine what it must be like to live here and wake up every day of your life to the same view. Didn't the people of the shield wall long for a movement and a change of scene? How did they dream without the grumbling vibrations of a city's engines to rock them to sleep? Did they love this place? And suddenly he felt terribly sad that the whole bustling, colorful, ancient city might soon be rubble under London's tracks. He wanted to see more. 
Going over to the nearest taxi balloon, he made the pilot understand that he was Miss Fang's guest and wanted to go down into the city. The man grinned and started waiting his gondola with stones from a pile that stood nearby, and Su Tom found himself traveling down past the many levels of the city again until he stepped out on a sort of central square where dozens of other taxis were coming and going and stairways branched off across the face of the shield wall, going up toward the high eyries and down to the shops and markets of the lower levels. News of Medusa were spreading fast through Batmungampa, and already a lot of the houses and shops were shuttered. Their owners fled to cities further south. The lower levels were still packed with people, though, and as the sun dipped behind the wall, Tom wandered, or wandered the crowded bazaars and steep ladderways. There were fortune-teller booths at the street corners and shrines to the sky gods, dusty with crumbly gray ash of incense sticks. Fierce-looking Uyghur acrobats were performing in the central square, and everywhere he looked, he saw soldiers and airmen of the League, blonde giants from Spitsbergen and blue-black warriors from the Mountains of the Moon, the small dark people of the Andean statics, and people the color of firelight from the jungle strongholds of Laos and Anam. He tried to forget that some of these young men and women might soon be dropping rockets on London and started to enjoy the flow of faces and the incomprehensible mismatch of languages. And sometimes he heard someone say Tom, or Thomas, or Taimo, as they pointed him out to their friends. The story of his battle with Shrike had spread through the mountains from the trading post to trading post and had been waiting for him here at Batmungampa. He didn't mind. It felt like a different Thomas they were talking about. Someone brave and strong who understood what had to be done and felt no doubts. He was just wondering if he should go back to the governor's palace and find Hester when he noticed a tall figure climbing a nearby stairway. The man wore a ragged red robe with a hood pulled down over his face and carried a staff in one hand and a pack slung over his shoulder. Tom had already seen dozens of these wandering holy men in Batmungampa, monks in the service of the mountain gods who traveled from city to city through the high passes. Up at the mooring platform, Anna Fang had stooped to kiss the feet of one and given six bronze coins for him to bless the Jenny Hanover. But this man was different. Something about him snagged Tom's gaze and would not let it go. He started following the red robe, he followed it through the spice market with its thousand astonishing scents and down the narrow streets of weavers where hundreds of baskets swung from low poles outside the shops like hanging nests brushing against the top of his head as he passed underneath. What was it about the way the man moved and that long brown hand clutching that staff? And then, under a lantern in a central square, the monk had stopped by a street girl asking for a blessing and Tom caught a glimpse of the bearded face inside the hood. He knew the hawk-like nose and those mariner's eyes. He knew that the amulet hanging between the black brows hid the familiar guild mark of the London historian. It was Valentine. Mm-hmm.